the dog were on the floor the other day, and as soon as I'm on the floor, Ed insists on jumping on me and shouting, Speedboat! Daddy Speedboat! Anyway, it generates quite a lot of static, and Hector came up to me and sort of nuzzled my ear, because he wanted something, and got an electric shock off my ear, got a static shock, and now won't go near me, because he's terrified of me. He thinks I have become charged. <laughs> quite hard to do the, the pre-show banter when we're all eating. Yeah, so am I the only person who's actually thought, well, I'll start at one o'clock, which is admittedly lunchtime, but perhaps I should eat before one o'clock. I made the exact opposite calculation. I thought this show was about food and has <laughs> lost touch with its roots. Yeah. And therefore I thought I'm going to eat during it. And long-time listeners, not these com- you know, Johnny-come-latelys who we've picked up in the last week since the Super League came along, mm. long-time listeners with, ah, oh, this is what it used to be like. This is like a retro set-piece menu classic. They're all eating and it's grim. But basically we're doing it. We're going to do a topic in a style that will really appeal to those who've been there since the very beginning. When you say style, Stephen, what you mean is with the sound of eating close to a microphone very much dominant, but not just from your little quarter box, but three quarters of the boxes. Steve, are you eating a carrot shaving? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it, they're supposed, it's supposed to be a carrot stick. It's just that's a, a little bit of a meagre one. There's, there's, some, there's some more impressive carrot sticks amongst the group. I thought I thought carrot uh, batons were supposed to be uniformly cut. Not you get I, anywhere not, on MasterChef. Not if not if the missus has cut them. <laughs> they'll, they'll, I'm, I'm lucky to have them at all. This is Set Me Smelly, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Rory Smith, who recommended the romantic comedy Palm Springs mm. on Amazon Prime. Stephen Wyeth, who has now watched the romantic comedy Palm Springs on Amazon Prime. And Andy Hinchcliffe, who wonders what Jack Reacher might do to the kind of soppy idiots that both appear in and consume the romantic comedy Palm Springs on Amazon Prime. We know what Reacher would do. What would he do? He'd headbutt them. <laughs> Of course he would. And yeah, the, but he'd be, he'd be stuck in a time loop having to headbutt the same person over and over again, and I don't think he'd get the same degree of satisfaction from that. Chat. Exactly. Oh, why? Is it like a, is it a Groundhoggy Day thing or something? Yeah, is it? Yeah, I'm it's never going to watch it, so you can... It's just like, yeah. it's just mm. like Groundhoggy Day. Yeah. Oh, OK. <laughs> what happened? <laughs> Remind us, Chich, what happens when the Groundhoggy appears from... No, I was going to say, is it, is it, I meant to say, is it, is it kind of Groundhoggy, not is it Groundhoggy Day? I just I, sh- I said the extra word that I should is it is it groundhoggy? I mean, is it on that kind of that that's the kind of premise? Yeah, that's what I meant. You should watch it, Chinch. You'd enjoy it. It's good. No, no, you're all right. Uh, the food is, as um, you may well have already been made aware, in a particularly unpleasant way, being consumed right now by three of the group. So um, let's go from beginning to end. Chinch, what are you consuming? Uh, I've had a chicken pesto salad from the Thrive Cafe at my local fitness emporium uh, and i've added blueberries myself so i've just sprinkled some blueberries in there tremendous meal rory what have you been consuming i have eaten a ham sandwich <laughs> yes the contrast there is noted and Stephen, what have you been consuming i traveled back from my local fitness emporium to discover a chorizo and cheese roll had been left oh, for me with basic. some i'd say averagely cut carrot batons I think just to be clear, Katie's response to that would be, cut your own batons. <laughs> Katie is two flights of stairs away and hasn't heard that. And, and she, <laughs> let's be honest, won't subsequently listen to that. <laughs> uh, the football is chinched. Do you know what we're talking about today? Oh, yeah. You tell us what we're talking about okay. and I'll see if I remember it. We're considering what the ESL debacle told us about the fans who did so much 
to stop it. It's not yeah. often those more performatively tribal supporters are able to suppress their instinctive hatred for their rival club and its fans, but in the face of an apparently more pressing foe, they were united. It's a bit like Independence Day. Or Independency Day. Independency uh, Day. No, Independency. No, not the day. <laughs> Ignore the day. Yeah, made that mistake before, haven't we? Yeah, but is this simply just another manifestation of tribalism? And how much of what those vocal supporters were railing against is actually something they've been pleading for, admittedly within the existing football structure, for years? Uh, that is to come. You can uh, get in touch with us on the podcast. Seppiesmenu at gmail.com is our email address. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook and YouTube as well. Kyle Burkholder is first up. Dear Stan, Kyle, Cartman and Kenny. As an American and devoted SBM listener, I was shocked to hear Rory's below-the-belt slander of Americans and our supposed inability to pronounce the word squirrel in last week's episode. <laughs> I would argue we pronounce the word perfectly correctly. We just don't feel the need to posh it up with any unnecessary flourishes. As for the name Graham, I suppose we can defer to Graham for the correct pronunciation, but I think we could probably all agree it's a silly name. But keeping with the squirrel theme, I live in Germany. And just as with the French, you frequently hear from English speakers that Germans also cannot pronounce the word squirrel. I've become convinced, however, that this is a practical joke planted by Germans to embarrass English speakers. Most Germans can say squirrel perfectly competently, but English speakers cannot possibly hope to properly pronounce the German word for squirrel, Eichhörnchen, without several years of German language training. Germans are unreasonably obsessed with squirrels. They will always excitedly point out a squirrel when they see one. And I've lost count of the number of times I've walked by Germans, young and old, stopped on the sidewalk, happily engaged in just watching a squirrel run around. I assume this is because squirrels are comparatively rare here, and they're about the only small animal you ever see. The US is overrun by squirrels. And they, do you know what? The more you say it, the harder yeah. it becomes. Mm. And they're generally considered pests. My mum would say rats with bushy tails. To close, I want to echo many other listeners' thanks for your consistently great podcasting. SPM has helped in a small way to get through a very difficult year. Also, congratulations to Rory for appearing on the New York Times wildly popular The Daily podcast this week. I think that means you've officially made it at the Times. All the best, Carl Burkholder from Stuttgart in Germany. Talking of which, briefly from Laura Berman, who writes an email with the subject betrayal. I spend all this time listening to SPM, wondering which teams the hosts support, and then I listen to The Daily, and Rory just spits it out with zero prompting. This giant secret, central to everyone's journalistic integrity, finally revealed in the least dramatic circumstances imaginable. Absolutely devastating. Rory, would you like to explain? Yeah, no, they made me, to be honest. And because it's The Daily, I, was, I, I wasn't my usual kind of chippy, self-righteous self. So I, 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 just, I just succumbed, to be honest. Astrid Herndon bullied me into doing it, basically. He's a Spurs fan. He made me reveal who I support. I probably should have said I don't really want to do this. It might, it might not help my Twitter mentions. But he just, he was just, he's just so cool. And I just kind of wanted him to like me. So I, so I did it. Um, so you cracked under the pressure of investigative journalism? <laughs> no, no. I cracked under the very, very thinly applied pressure of trying to impress someone I've never met. Ah, uh, similar. But they wanted it had to be kind of a... It was really hard. I've never been so nervous before a, a media engagement. Um, and I've done several media engagements opposite Robbie Savage. How, how do um, your nerves manifest themselves? Do you have butterflies or do you vomit? Uh, I'm vomiting butterflies, to be honest. <laughs> oh, dear. Disturbing at best. No, I was really nervous because it's the daily. It's massive. It's massive as the daily. Uh, and I wanted to be. I wanted to do well, but they also kind of wanted me to do a potted history of football in three sentences. And it was extremely difficult. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, given given that uh, Rory chose that moment, and we are not applying the same pressure, you'll have to listen to that to find out. Because we will try to maintain those 
incredibly thinly veiled levels of journalistic integrity. Uh, just in response to Kyle's question, I see, and I don't want to show off, dozens of squirrels every single day. So I, I am not impressed by squirrels. I don't know anyone who is impressed by squirrels. Uh, but that's because all of us lead not entirely urban lives, like Didsbury's quite, quite leafy, therefore there are many trees, uh, and Woodford obviously even leafier. So there's loads of squirrels about. No one's impressed by squirrels. I, don't, I, I would not say that we would stop and look at a squirrel, although I do know someone who would chase after a squirrel and bark ferociously at them whenever he sees one, which makes walking with him extremely difficult. Sorry about that. <laughs> We, we have a lot of squirrels in our garden, one of whom uses a plant pot by the back step to store the bits of food that he's stolen from other people's gardens. And that included very recently a Danish pastry. Oh, wow. <laughs> I want to know who it is locally who's leaving Danish pastries around outside because I'm breaking into their garden. <laughs> That's Stephen the Squirrel. Uh, we'll be touching on some of your emails about the Super League during our main chat, but uh, for now, just a couple that offer thoughts on aspects of the debate that I am probably incorrectly predicting will not be a part of today's pod. Here's Ed Prilucky, who returns after a correspondence hiatus. Dearest SPMers, he said, when the first wave of coronavirus closures and lockdowns swept through our respective countries a little over a year ago, much of my prime podcasting hours were lost for months on end. And as a consequence, I found myself roughly nine months behind on SPM recordings. Incredibly, I was finally able to clear my backlog of episodes out of context reaches and soccer stories just in time for the longest 48 hours in modern football history. The birth, life and death of the European Super League presented by Microsoft Paint and Squarespace. Towards the end of episode 227, aptly named the ESL S Show, you touched on pot potential penalties for the owners, boards, chairmen and clubs themselves for having the audacity to at least attempt to ruin the sport and leagues that we all love. My question is this, is not the attempt to create and join the rotting carcass of the Super League de facto evidence that these owners and chairmen are not fit and proper to own or lead Premier League clubs? Should not their attempted power grab automatically disqualify them from participation in the very league they are attempting to subvert? I'm not naive enough to imagine the Premier League or any other governing body will take disciplinary action that could potentially impact moneyed interests, but isn't an attempt to damage the Premier League product part of the reason for keeping the Saudi bid to purchase Newcastle from succeeding? Last, I'm not the only one to say this, but perhaps the most disheartening piece of the whole fiasco is to contrast how swiftly executives, lawyers, accountants and all other manner of corporate machinery went into action when the plans were released and the almighty revenue streams were threatened with the inaction we've seen from those same spineless and gutless cowards when players and teams have been racially abused in recent years. Sincerely, Edward, in Buffalo. Finally arriving, with your blessings, of course, in Buffalo and at Buffalo status. As you may recall, each of my previously read emails charted my progress from the home of Rory's employer up to Albany across upstate New York through Utica, Syracuse, Rochester, my current home in East Aurora, and finally ending with my hometown of Buffalo. Uh, we do remember that, Ed, but asking for Buffalo status, that is most unbecoming, particularly, actually, of a Buffalo. What do we think? Shall we decree Ed a Buffalo? He's, he's in Buffalo. I mean, it's fairly compelling. We've used a lot yeah. of his correspondence oh, and he seems to have yeah. taken on quite a long road trip, whether, you know, literal or theoretical, just to reach that status. Uh, Ed, Stephen has spoken. Congratulations. You are our newest Buffalo. Um, staying in the US... Michael Schwantz is in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I include it in spite of what appears to be a lengthy and very personal attack on me. Hello, Joel, John, Roman and Stan. I found your lovely pod through Rory's NYT newsletter and have enjoyed it greatly for some time now. As an American, I was actually a bit deflated to hear that the rapid decay of the ESL would rob us of a conversation I was desperate for. Whether or not the NFL is sport, or really whether it's a model that gives a damn about sport. 
I awoke the Monday after the ESL announcement to feed a light with a near glee of many Americans who saw the reaction to it as a gratuitous fit over something that should have been viewed as positive. In their eyes, the NFL is the pinnacle of sports leagues, and it was silly to protest anything that brings soccer closer to that ideal. I'm from Berkeley, California, adjacent to Oakland, once home to three professional sports teams that shared two stadiums between them. The NFL franchise, now the Las Vegas Raiders, was owned by Al Davis, a paranoid tyrant and famously poor judge of talent in his later years. His son, a mound of molten cheese with a bowl cut, now owns the team. <laughs> uh, Google it, yes. Uh, the Raiders moved from Oakland to Los Angeles to Oakland and now to Las Vegas. In the 60 years since their founding, they've won three titles, the most recent being 40 years ago. They are a poor team and have been for the entirety of my life. However, in the scheme of the NFL, the Raiders face no punishment for being a franchise storied for failure. Their contempt for fans in Oakland and Los Angeles doesn't affect their access to wealth, status, or the competition itself. Yes, he says in brackets, I am very bitter. The NFL is a closed system where change only comes through the unanimous consent of the old men who run its teams. The result is a cartel focused entirely on their interests, money, and with no breaks on its greed or shamelessness. This is not a good model for the actual game of American football or its fans. And then he says, why does Hugh like it? It says something of the abusive nature of NFL franchises towards their fans that Americans could suggest that this is a league model with merits other than its ability to generate cash. Anyway, I know this pod isn't that kind of football pod, but I was hoping the discussion of the ESL model as compared to the NFL would eventually find its way to air. European football fans obviously aren't confused as to the merits of the ESL, but in my mind, being plain about the failures of the NFL model could guide what exactly football needs to avoid in the inevitable future proposals since owners of European teams, American or not, are keenly eyeing NFL-style profits. Best, and sorry for the long letter, that's from Michael. But there's a really good point in that, you know, that, that I think when we think of what of you know how football might change for the better we tend to at least look at the egalitarianism of and think that might be a guiding principle for how football should change we you know there's there's that old line about americans are strangely socialist in sport and europeans who are maybe more like generally left leaning politically are, are hyper capitalist in sport and i think there's, there's it's a cheesy cliche but it's true but i never thought of that that basically a lot of nfl teams are crap and have been crap for a long time and there doesn't seem to there is no there, there is no incentive really for them to win stuff like when did the cowboys last win a super bowl um, <clears throat> early 90s they won three out of four years i think so that's getting on for 30 years of of not very much and obviously obviously long, teams, i don't know how long what, has I, the nfl been around by the way uh, si- what sixties is when they joined? Together? Well, it's been it, the, the sport has been going for for a hundred. The, the league has been in existence for a hundred years, hundred one years. But uh, the Super Bowl era started at the end of the sixties. Okay. So there's obviously teams like the Jets and the Jaguars who are famously awful, but there there do seem to be quite a lot of teams who are kind of locked out. The Bears are dreadful, which is odd because Bears are amazing, maj- majestic creatures. And they'd also be well designed for that sport. Is there a franchise called the Squirrels or not? No, the Squirrels. Not... The squirrels. 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 Is there a Squirrels? squirrels. The South, the South Carolina Squirrels. Squirrels. Um, so no, I think that, but that is a good point. That that model doesn't incentivise being good. It just incentivises being there, and that isn't actually something that's addressed enough. Whenever Europeans use it as a as an example of how fo- of how sport could be. And I, and I don't know whether people thought this deeply about it, but it struck me as one of the objections to the European Super League was that actually it demonstrated a lack of ambition. Yes, an ambition to secure for yourself and your team, your franchise, a load more cash. But that effectively, if you look at Arsenal currently being the 10th best team in the Premier League, then by joining a closed shop, 
where ultimately there would only be one prize on offer each season because the chances of you being allowed to remain in your domestic competition appears to have been incredibly slim under the circumstances. What you're effect- you are saying is we're not we're, we're currently mid-table in the Premier League and ultimately we're going to be satisfied with at best being mid-table in the European Super League. Yet we'll have huge amounts more money coming in as a consequence of the deal that was on the table, but we haven't been running things terribly well in recent times within our current structure. So who was to say that we would be suddenly running things brilliantly in this new awash with money structure and other clubs who are coming into it are currently at the pinnacle domestically. We're miles away from Manchester City now, but what we're going to close the cap on them in a European Super League. So it's sort of, it, it felt to me as though it was like, it was a lack of ambition in joining a closed shop. I think there is, there, I think there is an element of that. The, mot- the motivations for all of the teams are different, as we may or may not have touched on. I talked about this a lot recently. So like for, for Real and Barca, it was partly to do with getting as much money as possible, but it was also to do with clipping the wins of the, the, wins of the Premier League and the, the new money elite, Chelsea, City and PSG, that they can't compete with. For for Inter, for Milan, and for Atletico, it was just getting any money at all. It was we just need this money. Like we're, we're desperate. You have to give it. Someone has to give us some money, or we're 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 done for. But I think that in terms of the lack of ambition, I'm not sold on the idea that Arsenal and Spurs would automatically have been the poor relations in once it started, because by standardising the income that all the teams had, the bulk of the money would all would have come from this giant pot of centrally sold TV rights and stuff, they would have been able to match the incomes of the, of the, big, the big Spanish and to an extent, the big Spanish clubs and to an extent Juventus and Man City and PSG. They would have sort of erased the difference there a little bit. But because of the cost controls that were in place, they wouldn't have been able to be outspent. So I, I think certainly for, for Liverpool, they saw it as their way to compete. Mm. And I think that might have fed into the thinking of, of Arsenal and Spurs a little bit too. The main temptation for them, for Spurs, I think it was just a seat at the table. It was it was almost the acknowledgement that they were elite. Like for Daniel Levy, I suspect that being invited into the Super League is better than winning winning the Carabao Cup. It's a it's a way yeah. of proving the status that he's he's managed to bestow on the club. For Arsenal, because the Cronkies are such dreadful owners and seem to have literally zero interest in run, in running the team to do anything, I'm not sure that they would have thought this is definitely a way that we can compete. But I think the effect might have been that because you've standardised the incomes across the board among those 12, and plus the three others or whatever, you may well have found that in time, Arsenal and Spurs were more competitive than they were being given credit for. But, but is not um, cash flow, revenue, spending caps, that is all standardised within American franchise sport, isn't it? Yeah, and you have some successful teams and you have some who are routinely and consistently poor, even when they tank to try and get good players in a draft. So if if you're already currently in the top 1%, as Arsenal and Tottenham are, and haven't had much success of late, why would you suddenly have success or an opportunity at success up against better run teams who were also going to get yeah, more money. That's 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 a totally fair point. I think the I think the idea is, and I'm not advocating for it. I'm not. This isn't like let's revive the Super League. Wasn't it a great idea? We all got it badly wrong last week. But I think the idea was that that if you standardise the income, it's the it's the better run teams that do well. So 
Atletico Madrid could have got you know a sporting director in place who was really good and a manager in place who was really good and and taken on Barcelona and Real Madrid and Man City much more consistently because mm. City City say wouldn't have had this massive financial advantage. The the flip side to that is the is the point I guess of the email, which is that actually in closed leagues where there is no there there is no disincentive for being terrible, you tend to find that most teams are quite average, and that one or t- the one or two who are well well run dominate everything. We will return to some of those themes, no doubt, uh, uh, as we converse in a moment. Um, Have we ruined your running order? Because we've kind of already strayed into the general body of the conversation, haven't we? You know, when when I preface an email by saying uh, we're going to talk about this to a certain degree in the main body of our uh, of our podcast, that I'm not telling the listeners that. I'm telling you lot that, ah. and you and you completely ignored it uh, as ever. Uh, finally, on this from Kieran Manning, dear gang of four, I was listening to your podcast during the week and thinking about the proposed Super League. Some thoughts struck me, which, when put together, started to reveal a pattern. Number one, the original story was broken by Rory's colleague Tarek. Number two. Andy was doing co-coms for Sky on Monday when the news was all over the broadcast and was well-placed to add in his comments. Number three, Stephen happened to be at the Leeds against Liverpool game as well at a perfect time to interview Jurgen Klopp, whose objections to a Super League are already on record. Number four, from listening to Wednesday's podcast, it seems clear that Rory was the scriptwriter for both the UEFA statement and Pep Guardiola's comments. And five, during his rambling interview, Florentino Perez alleged that the fans protesting outside Stamford Bridge had all been shipped in by a mystery man. While he did not name names, it is clear that this type of mass fan transport could easily have been facilitated by Andy and his car rental business. <laughs> <laughs> while, while the above is probably not conclusive, there is some circumstantial evidence that the whole Super League was invented by the set-piece menu crew. All of the confusion and controversy about the proposal would encourage football fans to seek information and insight from a podcast where you had four friends with extensive football knowledge and a wide range of perspectives. Plus, this type of manufactured controversy would also appeal to Rory's WWE fandom. It also seems very convenient that the whole news broke at the point where you had added Manscaped as a sponsor to go along with your Jordanian Allen Key partner. Now that you have advertisers lined up, you can start to cash in after steadily building up the brand. While I'm prepared to admit some minor gaps in my logic, you have to agree it makes more sense than the alternative, which was that 12 clubs made such a clumsy and haphazard attempt to set up a breakaway league. Yours somewhat, somewhat sincerely, Kieran. Uh, thank you, Kieran. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. And talking of Manscaped, Setpiece Menu is sponsored by Manscaped, the global leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your family jewels, and it's now available in the USA, in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, the EU, and the UK, which is copy uh, that is only relevant post-2020. We have an exclusive offer for our audience as well. Use code SPM to get 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Join the movement and the other 2 million men who trust Manscaped. Manscaped, in addition to providing the right tools and solutions for safe and easy manscaping, has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society, which our American listeners will know does amazing work in spreading awareness for men's health and early cancer detection. One guy every hour, every day, is diagnosed with testicular cancer. So this is a reminder to all of the men listening to check yourself before you wreck yourself. It was check yourself uh, before you wreck yourself in the copy, but I'm not entirely sure this man, this white, you can't. Off. You definitely can't pull that off. I think yo can't pull that off. Is, uh, what that you're sounds, that sounds more brummy than anything. Now <laughs> <laughs> can't pull that off. While you're down there manscaping your sack, why not go ahead and do a little investigating for lumps, changes in size, or any pain? I think we can all agree it's pretty fun playing with your balls anyway. And if you do find any of those things, give your doctor 
are cool. Manscaped recommends you check yourself once a month. In addition to doing that regularly, you want to make sure your sack is looking fresh and clean with the Manscaped Perfect Package 3.0. Inside that perfect package, you will find the Crop Preserver, an anti-chafing deodorant for your balls, and the Crop Reviver. Make sure you do it in that order. A spray-on ball toner and refresher. That is the Perfect Package 3.0, the Perfect Package 2.0, was Andy Hinchcliffe, circa 1995 to 1997. You can get 20% off and free shipping with code SPM at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and free shipping with the code SPM at manscaped.com. Your balls will thank you. Now then, Steve Bruce says fans delivered a slap to the face of the six Premier League clubs behind the failed European Super League. Sean Dyche said that they had looked after football. Uh, sorry, Rory, would you mind doing that? Sean Dyche said they'd... Looked after football. Thank you. And it is undeniable that the extraordinary <laughs> rising up of fans, as one in opposition to the breakaway, played a huge part in its abrupt collapse. Protests were staged and their efforts were augmented by fans of clubs that would have been left behind by high-profile members of the media and even government, leaving those rich owners in no doubt whatsoever that their desire to get richer would not be tolerated. It has become, for how long we do not know, a reframing of the tribalism that dominates modern football culture. And the battle lines appear to have been drawn almost as aggressively as across modern club divides. But apart from those owned by oligarchs with a seemingly bottomless pit of resources, why did those behind the idea want more money in the first place, to line their future pockets, yes, but is it also, at least partly, to deliver on demands made of them by those very fans telling them not to upend the status quo? A status quo that has long been considered barely fit for purpose and therefore one worthy of potentially significant change. We were at pains last week to say a damning verdict on the ESL is not a tacit acceptance of how things are, but in turning their tribal attentions to rail against even the principle, or dare I say, benefits, of a different kind of European Super League, are some fans forgetting how we got here in the first place? This, this I think, is kind of the, the bit of this conversation that nobody, nobody really wants to have and that has gone completely unsaid through, throughout the last 10 days, which is that we shouldn't really pretend that fans object to all the money. And we've talked before about, about the the disconnect between how we interpret the money being taken from us to access our game, which is through ticket pricing, through TV subscription, through through merchant, you know, the cost of buying a, buying a shirt or whatever, all the ways that fans are rinsed by, by, by bid football to, to keep the wheels a-turning. There is a disconnect between that and the, the totally valid and entirely correct objection to that process and what we see playing out on August the 31st and January the 31st, what kind of dominates the back pages of the newspapers, what drives so much of football conversation, which is the endless, breathless, relentless kind of spending of money, the, the, the sort of celebration of spending. Those things are connected. And I think that for whatever change is going to come from this moment, it will only happen if fans, and I include myself in this, it's not, I don't want to be talking down to anybody, kind of accept that, that football, football basically has a, has a billionaire problem, that it is completely reliant on those billionaires. So you see the Arsenal fans protesting against Cronkey outside the Emirates before the Everton game. And that's totally legitimate that they're protesting, not just the ESL, but for Cronkey's gen general ownership. But do those fans want, want 
fan ownership? Do they want 50 plus one? Do they want a return to the days where it was some local grandee who kind of ran the club out of the goodness of their heart? Or do they want to replace one billionaire with another? Because for all that Daniel Ek, the founder of Spotify, might appear to be a better class of billionaire, he's still a billionaire and he's still going to do stuff that billionaires do. Now, he might not want to have a Super League, but he might have some other wacky plans from for owning a club and you're still regardless of whether the individual billionaire is good or bad or indifferent you are still placing this institution that you say is a social and community institution that belongs to us at the mercy of an individual's whims and if you do that across the board then the whole game is at the mercy of an individual's whims and i think that as I say, it, it, it sounds a bit like, well, who's, who's, it sounds a bit Alex Jones. It's like, here's the thing that nobody's talking about, chemtrails. But uh, We should say this, this is the American right-wing Alex Jones, not the one-show presenter Alex Jones. Potato, potato. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the, the, um, but, the, but ultimately, we need to talk about, we need to talk about fa- whether fans have thought through the type of change they want because for a start can i just ask a question about do we differentiate between fans of the clubs involved and other fans or do they all feel the same we're talking about the fans of the clubs involved here i I think the splits and i could be completely wrong but i think the splits probably are reflected across all fans that i think there will be fans of lower league clubs i suppose who who just resent the kind of money that's come in and the kind of and big football and modern football all that stuff there is there is that there is a demographic who have that view. But I would say with them, at least, their viewpoint is is relatively consistent. They make no secret of the fact that... I don't, To be honest, I don't necessarily agree with it, but they make no secret of the fact that they just want football to be like it was, where there was less money, where there was less glamour, where there was less, less, of, less of everything, less, you know, not this shiny product. That's, rel- that's not difficult to parse that, that sort of logical standpoint. I think much more complex and probably much more interesting is the, the kind of the split personality effectively of, of, of the fan who does like what the Premier League has become, the best league in the world, these squads full of stars, but resents not only how much it costs them to pay for it, but having their, as we've seen this week, having their clubs or their game at the mercy of individual billionaires who want to shape it in, in a way that they, that they like, who want, to, who want to use it for their own purposes, who want to kind of, you know, in the case of PSG, want to buy buy Neymar in part so they can kind of blow the transfer market open and, and no one can compete can, can compete with them, so they get all the best players. But ultimately, you can't you can't advocate for change if you're not prepared to have the consequences of change. And the thing that occurred to me last week is that I think, and this goes back to the American model, I think that with the bit that no one is prepared to fully countenance yet is that if you have a redistribution of wealth, you have to have a redistribution of success. And that doesn't necessarily mean, and I think an element of it's been taken like this, that if you clip the wings of the big six, that you will get another big six in their place, that suddenly actually Man United and Liverpool will be rubbish, but Everton might win the league all the time, or Crystal Palace or West Ham or Leicester or whatever. That, that's not what a redistribution of wealth is. It's not, it's not taking money out of the pockets of one team and putting it in the pockets of the other. You have to have a system where... Well, for a start, you wouldn't have any buyouts. You wouldn't have this kind of... You, the Saudis wouldn't come on and buy Newcastle and Newcastle would win the league because you, wouldn't be a, you would have to have rules in place where that couldn't happen because a game that was much more akin to Germany where, where there was some sort of fan ownership, some form of fan ownership, and where money was spread evenly, if Saudi Arabia came on and bought Newcastle, it would just make it easier for them to win the league. It wouldn't, it, there would have to be strong rules that that could not happen. 
you wouldn't be transferring the power straight to Everton or to Newcastle or to Leicester. You would be, main, you'd be making it so that at the start of the season, a dozen teams had genuine hopes of winning the league. But the payoff for that is that at the end of the season, it is less likely that your club has won the league if you are in one of the maybe eight, nine teams at the moment who, for whom that is vaguely possible, that you might win the league. Maybe ten if you include the big six, Leicester, Everton, Chuck West Ham in, I suppose. There's ten teams that could conceivably win the league. Clipping the wins of the big six doesn't mean that your team's chances improve. It means that everyone has an equal shot. And that, in turn, maybe means that all these fancy, you know, all these squads that are full of internationals, maybe they have to go. Maybe the best players in the world aren't in England anymore. Maybe, maybe, the, you know, maybe Erling Haaland stays at Borussia Dortmund for his career. Maybe he's not the subject of a £150 million transfer. All of that stuff goes a little bit. Maybe football becomes a bit less reliant on transfers. And I'm not sure that fans have quite made that connection when they, when they protest. There's a lot of indigenous supporters who probably are thinking what Rory's just described there sounds pretty appealing. And I know you haven't necessarily presented it as a kind of perfect nirvana, but I think that's one thing that has pulled, drawn football fans together over the course of, of the last week or so, is that idea that a little bit of uncertainty in terms of who are the top dogs would be a step in the right direction. And that, that this redistribution, that, that most would probably be willing, bearing in mind that with the exception of Manchester City and to an extent, as we've seen in recent seasons, Liverpool, most fans, even of the biggest clubs, have to accept that at the start of any one season, their chances of winning something aren't guaranteed. So therefore, actually, they might accept the consequences of their own team's chances being diminished ever so slightly if it meant that there wasn't just one or two clubs who were constantly victorious and thus their noses were being rubbed in it by the same couple of teams. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And I think, I think you are completely correct that people generally cherish that unpredictability and are, would be prepared to, to sacrifice a little bit of their own primacy for more unpredictability. The bit that I think that maybe that maybe gets lost is that if you have a change, a significant change to the current model, you maybe don't get all of the attendant benefits of the Premier League in inverted of the Premier League as as the product that it is at the moment. You don't get quite so many star players. You don't get to have the big money signings. You don't get to there would be greater competition, but probably less glamour. Yeah. I, I don't know how many of those fans who are really against... I think a lot of fans are sincerely and deeply against having their clubs owned by billionaires. I think a lot of fans are sincerely and deeply against the game being run in order to mollify those billionaires. And that's not just the big, the big 12, the Super League 12. It's, it's lots of other teams besides. I think most fans would want, the, want tickets to cost less or TV subscriptions to cost, cost less. or you know, they'd, they'd want it to be more approachable. One of the things Perez said was... You know, young people don't like football. Maybe let them go and see games every once in a while. That might be an idea. That might that might help get them into it. These these young people without attention spans. But I don't know to what extent if you if if you said right, we will have a fan ownership model at Arsenal, but that means that the that there's no there's no scope for losses. So we're we're not going to sign players unless we get into the Champions League and. We, you know, we have to pay. We can't pay Pierre Aubameyang three hundred fifty grand a week. They shouldn't be paying him that anyway. It's ridiculous. 
we can't fulfill these big contracts, we can't pay these massive fees. Is that what Arsenal fans want? And if it is, great. I'm not, I'm not saying I know the answer, but if, if Arsenal fans want that as long as everybody else has got that, then that's fine. But there is a cost to that, and that is that the, the, the Premier League becomes... You can't have the best league in the world and not have some of the people bankrolling it to make it the best league in the world. I think that's the reality of where we are now. If you start from scratch, it'd be different, but I think in reality you can't change that. The, the argument would be, I suppose, that they might want to make at that juncture is to say that if everybody was 50 plus one, then clearly that would be much more of a level playing field. If, if Arsenal, are the, as, as the yeah, example of, course, of this yeah, club, yeah. are the yeah. only ones to do it, then clearly the, 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 the gap is, is widened. And bearing in mind quite a lot of the conversation over the course of the last 10 days or so is about widening gaps. Uh, that, that's a particularly pointed point of view that they might have. But also... And, and it seems like we're going to be flirting with this idea of the American model as we continue our conversation. But the idea is, is that if you do have at least some sort of parity in the way that you run, run a club financially, or you have regulations in, in which you have to operate, under which you have to operate, then clearly that allows for an element of competition that we don't currently have. And also this element of the tribalism being kind of redirected, if you like. Any sort of, if, if you are a Manchester City fan or a Liverpool fan or a Manchester United fan, any sort of less than perfection achievement, you are having to defend your club against a barrage of willful criticism from all parts. Because it would seem that the nature of the discourse of football, particularly in these, this era of tribalism, is that you are either perfect or you are nothing. And so therefore the insecurity grows to the extent that if you're not perfect, you feel like you are um, going to have to withstand some sort of attack. So it's now being reframed to the extent that if all fans believe that the European Super League was not a good idea, and anybody who dares say anything against the Euro- uh, anything against their point of view that the European Super League is not a good idea, then they are defending that as vigorously as they would do their team in the circumstances I just de- described. So, is the like most tribalism? It's based on insecurity about that that fear of failure or the fear of the repercussions personally to them of failure of their team. So is this new tribalism framed in the same way? Is it a mass insecurity that fans now all have about the idea of this happening? So they feel like they have to rally the troops in the same way and try and beat down any possible acolyte or promoter of a European Super League? I think fans object to this idea that has been exposed by the European Super League that the owners are more interested in the money that they are accumulating or can accumulate instead of thinking about how better they can spend the money that they already have. I know we have talked about this very recently, but it, it, it seems to me as though what this has exposed is that this idea that we're not going to try and be cleverer with our money, to be more careful with how we invest it, to maybe not pay Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang, £350,000 a week, or to give the kind of contracts that Mesut Ozil had or Alexis Sanchez had at Manchester United when those kind of contracts have not been justified. Football fans accept that the likes of Ronaldo and Messi get paid huge sums of money because they have proved over a prolonged period of time that they don't just justify that in terms of their performances on the pitch, but in, in terms of the profile that they bring to the club that they are representing it seems to me as though the issue is is how that their salaries and the fees that are paid for the very top players 
elevates the rank and file beneath them. The wealth that can be accumulated by stars in other parts of our life seems to diminish much more quickly, even within other sports. Yet in football, we seem to spend an awful lot of an awful lot of money seems to go out of the door for either by the high standards of elite football, the mediocre. And and this I, I believe that that's one of the things that European Super League has exposed because these owners, these people that run the clubs that are already in the top 10% of the top 10% are saying football isn't fit for purpose when actually you have been the greatest beneficiaries of it. Those who can lay claim to football and wealth within football not being fit for purpose are a lot further down the food chain than you are. So it's absolutely farcical for Florentino Perez to stand up there and say, look, football isn't working. We need this European Super League to solve the problems. No, you need the European Super League to solve your very specific problem, which you have helped to create. That's a really good point, because I think one of the problems... So I, I, ha, I have some sympathy with the argument that football's economy is broken. I think that is basically true, and I think it can simultaneously... But it's not broken for them, Rory. Well, no, no, so I think it is. I think it's, it's, not, that... it's not just broken for them. It's broken in a more existential way for clubs, as you say, way down the food chain. But with one or two exceptions, the current economic model of football does not work for anyone. Would be would be my my. I think that's my general point of view. That if you think about the, but those who have those who have greated con, great most greatly contributed to the model becoming broken, aren't those who deserve the greatest access to any potential solution. No, that's that is that is abundantly true. Yes, that's absolutely. I agree with you. With, with, I agree on that completely that it, it would be wrong for for them for the people who have who have driven us to this point to benefit but I don't think that should distract from the fact that that yeah to be honest for Real Madrid the current economic model doesn't work they can't compete with nation states they just can't teams in Spain and Italy I, one of the things that's annoyed me this week is is how much this has been presented and it's just I'm exposed to it as an English story it's not an English story this is a European story it's not that you know it's, it's kind of you've seen these comment pieces about how how Florentino Perez has, has disrespected the, the English pyramid. Florentino Perez has no interest whatsoever in the English pyramid, and to be honest, neither should he, because why, why, why on earth would Florentino Perez be like, oh, well, now this will impact Plymouth? Like, it's not, it would be ridiculous. Of course he doesn't care. It's because, amazingly, the English pyramid is not the only thing in football that matters. More of a problem is that Florentino Perez has not respected the Spanish pyramid. That matters too. You know, Andrea Agnelli has, has, has shown not a care for Bari. And we should all be thinking about Bari at all times. The, Particularly their nets from circa 1993. Exactly. So that, that element of it has frustrated me. I think that for Real Madrid and for Barcelona, they have... And this is where I'll bring it back to the fans. And I'm not, I'm not kind of victim-blaming, I don't think. But basically, Real Madrid and Barcelona are in a position where they can't... It's really easy for us to say they should cut their cloth accordingly cut their wages, you know, rebuild around youth. You, you can't do that if you're Real Madrid and Barcelona, partly because it's a, it's a presidential model, which means they'll, just get, they'll get voted out by someone promising, something, promising to compete with the nation states, but partly because the, kind of the fan expectation in general is that they should be winning stuff. And if they're not winning stuff, everyone gets shouted at. And that, I think, is an extremely kind of... In, that's an import, that sounds stupid, but, and I've deliberately diminished it. But that's a really important factor, that, that those clubs have a, 
a really pronounced like supporter culture that demands success and that the people who are running those clubs feel pressurised by that to do things that they shouldn't do. So yes, I think you are absolutely right to say that ultimately the solution for Real Madrid is not to break football, it's to run their club in some way vaguely sensibly. That is what Real Madrid should do. They need to get, get rid of this model that relies on paying players stupid amounts of money endlessly to the extent they can't even shift them and you know look for young players look for you know get a, get a clever director of director of football in you know institute a kind of scouting program build a team organically and do it cheap and then do what the german clubs do so well which is which is buy low and sell high you look at i mean rb leipzig have, have just sold a manager for 25 million euros you know they know how to that is their model that they have this sensible system whereby they will go and recruit really cheap players who are, who are talented and then sell them on because Guess what? They've got quite reasonable release clauses in their contracts, which means that they get a load of money to go and buy the next set of players. That's how clubs should be run. I'll be like to a controversial example, but that you know you can't deny that they are good at what they do. Real and Barca are awful at what they do, but at least part of that is because of the external circumstances and the pressure they're under to compete with teams who have an unfair advantage on them. So how do you how do you fix that? Because again, the American answer is to regulate to the extent that you create parity through your outgoings. You have a salary cap. You are yes, it, it's it is a way of maximising the profits for the owners, which of course is one of the reasons and the motivations for those twelve getting together and uh, and starting the Super League. Um, but apart from that, it is a regulation on costs and spending, which is of in- incredible value to those sporting franchises because they are able to know that at least they're all operating under the same rules. The problem seems to be, for for myriad reasons that Stephen, you articulated, and Rory, you too, there is an unlevel playing field that means that clubs are attempting to compete with something that, frankly, they cannot compete with. They are being urged to do so by those fans who want to see success for them at any cost. So how do you find yourself any sort of way out of this? Well, you might say that it has to be regulated. And as far as the the European Super Super League clubs' attempts to regulate in their proposal are concerned, yes, perhaps for the wrong motivations, but is that not the only way? that you can possibly find a route out of this situation for those clubs who are in all sorts of disparate levels spending more than they can afford to try and match those only one or two clubs who aren't spending more than they can afford. But we don't need Real Madrid and Barcelona to be successful all of the time in order for football to survive. And that's something else. This is being dressed up as, well, we need the current elite clubs or at least those who claim to be the current elite clubs to continue to be elite or the the whole house of cards tumbles. Look, it would be awful for supporters of of those clubs to suddenly go through a barren spell because they have been used to nothing but success for a long time. But the Premier League hasn't died a death because Manchester United suddenly stopped winning the title. In fact, stopped really competing for the title. Liverpool who were the outstanding English club for two decades, then didn't win the league title for 30 years, yet somehow the wheel kept turning. And, and in that period, Liverpool got more popular. Yeah, and, and, and English football grew more popular during the time that Liverpool, one of its elite clubs, wasn't being successful. So I, I don't understand this. Like if, if Real Madrid ha- and Barcelona have to accept that they have huge debts that they, that need to be sorted out, then other clubs in Spain step into the breach. Likewise, in Italy with 
it with Juventus by in a seemingly well well enough run that that they did, they don't need or didn't need to certainly be part part of it from from the offset. So elite clubs come and go. Football is an organic process. It's, it's not that long ago that Atletico did manage to win La Liga and get to a couple of Champions League finals. You know, we can all still remember very vividly Valencia being champions of of Spain. It is it's not extraordinary that somebody else would step into the but I mean Alaves played Liverpool in a Europa League or a UEFA Cup final in fairly recent memory. It's not extraordinary that other clubs from the major European footballing countries can have an opportunity to be at the top, whilst those who have been at the top most recently, but have, you know, effectively overspent to keep themselves there, have to have a period of of regrouping and, and and find a different way. I'm really conscious that, that at this point Chinch is actually just doing the paperwork for his car hire business. But <laughs> to, just before he says anything for the first time in, in half an hour, I think it actually speaks to the contempt in which the owners hold fans. And one of the things maybe that everyone misunderstood here is that as well as having a loyalty to your team, part of being a fan is having a loyalty to the game. And that's not an element that we see very often. Does it's normally shrouded in the tribe in the day-to-day tribalism of my team's better than yours, Messi's better than Ronaldo. But there is a kind of a loyalty towards the game, and there is a love for the game, this thing that brings you so much joy that makes you protective of it. And I think the owners misjudged, or maybe didn't misjudge that, they might not have been aware it existed. They might be sufficiently out of touch, they didn't they didn't see that it was there. I think that you're yes, Steve's totally right, that if the big clubs suffer for a bit, that's no bad thing. It's good. It freshens it up, it makes it makes it more interesting, gives gives other teams a chance. That's a principle that's clearly very important to a lot of people. Um, I suppose the problem that the owners have that is in some way legitimate is we don't know what happens if Barca and Real Madrid and Juve are all rubbish for 10 years. Because the, football is now at a level of global popularity that it's never really been at before. That it has fans in lots of different places, lots of different areas, who all operate in slightly different ways and have different forms of loyalty. All of them are as legitimate as each other, but they are different forms of loyalty. I suspect that it's understandable that the owners of those clubs might have the fear that their appeal is transitory and might not come back if they're not successful. I think it's probably slightly offensive to fans as intelligent humans to assume that they will just follow the, the, the latest shiny thing. I suspect that if you saw Alaves in the Europa League final now, people would find that interesting and take great pleasure in, in, in it. But sadly, European football has done, all it, can, has done all, it, all it can over the last, what, 20 years to make sure that Ajax get into a Champions League semi-final, which was the, the most compelling story of that year, is seen as a bad thing for the competition. In answer to Hugh's question about what you do about it, that I think is is the next really interesting subject because it doesn't just have to be regulatory. It doesn't have to be kind of salary caps or cost controls or anything like that. You could do slightly more innovative things about talent redistribution that would, I think, have the effect of driving down wages overall. The pandemic will do that a little bit anyway. So players will not be able to earn as much money this year, next year, as they were two, three years ago, market values would have changed. But Gab, Gab Marcotti certainly has an idea that you should limit squad size fairly severely. So you maybe say you're only allowed, you're allowed to have 19 or 20 senior players and then under 21s don't count towards it, which incentivizes youth production, but also means that those five, six senior international players who are currently on the books of the, of the big six clubs, the big 12 clubs, would have to go somewhere else to play. Mm. Um there's a rule in baseball about 
being allowed to pick up players who aren't playing for their current team. That if you if you haven't played a certain number of games for your current team, you are automatically, I think, registered as available for trade. You could introduce some, some sort of similar some sort of process similar to that. Because the big the other big issue that's come as a consequence of of the kind of era of the super clubs is that is this kind of acquisition of talent, the 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 coalescing of talent in certain places. If you spread that talent out, not only do you do you organically get more competitive teams elsewhere, but you also get a, a sort of sharing of the wage burden, which will probably drive the wages down because the bid teams won't be a, the the teams that can pay the two hundred and fifty grand salaries to substitutes will not be able to pay those players, so they won't be able to play them. Which means that they'll have to go elsewhere and earn less, which should depress wages mm. just a little bit. It, we we generally speaking try and plan for this part of the the program to be about thirty minutes. That's that's our kind of launching off point. If we if we talk about thirty minutes, I feel like you know we'll start to wrap it up after that. So after twenty nine minutes of today's <laughs> discussion, <laughs> enter Andy Hinchcliffe. Do you want me to say something? <laughs> because I'm just listen. I'm just I'm basking. I'm enjoying educated men talking intelligently about a major issue i know my place what have you got, in got those listen, headphones listen, we've got the four of you we've got the four of us we've got real madrid we've got barcelona we've got man city you need a plymouth i'm quite happy to be plymouth well, and I'm... just sit quietly in a corner festering I'm gonna... <laughs> don't feel the need to ask me a question on this subject because we clearly have Men with minds and brains the size of planets. Go to them for insightful information. Come to me if you want a ridiculous soccer story or maybe a subject that I can actually add some information to. Chinch, I have a question. I have a question that you will understand. Why is Hugh drinking his own urine, by the way? Great question. That is a great question. He's got a pint of his own urine. What is he doing? It's an orange Barocca. Sorry, Rory, you've got a question for Rory, me. Do that, and then I've got a couple Can of it be multiple choice, please? Chinch, when, yes. you, when you were playing against Manchester United in their absolute pomp, did you always feel as though you could compete with them? Ooh, that's a very good question, isn't it? When I was at Wednesday, when I was at Everton and we used to play them, we knew, or I certainly knew, that we were inferior, but always, 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 always felt we had a chance. When I was at Sheffield Wednesday... Even though we did beat United on a couple of kids, I was more surprised when it happened there because United were further down the line when they played at Everton, Sheffield Wednesday. The years had gone by and they'd got stronger and better and better. So, yeah, at the time, yeah, something I've not really thought about. But, yeah, at the time, I would definitely say when we were with Everton playing them that I feel, yes, we always had a chance and we did do reasonably well. But with Wednesday... I did feel more on the back foot and it maybe became again from the weight of their achievements and the mm. players that they had that again, I knew where I stood. Wednesday knew where they stood when we played Man United, but we still managed to, I think on two occasions we actually beat them. So I think I've told the story, haven't I, of, of uh, Paolo Di Canio and Gary Neville kissing his badge and stuff. I think I've told that soccer story, haven't I? Have I not? I don't no. think you have. Oh, interesting. That might be one for future. Write it See, down. Just teased write it in it there. Down, teased it. I better write it down because I will forget. But yes, actually, yeah, yeah, yeah again, the modern players, yeah, they must feel that way. Even Tottenham, in Tottenham going to that Carabao Cup fight, it, it looked like they were beaten before a ball was kicked. So it, you must know where you sit and you must know the level of opposition and the chances of you actually winning. So I think it's probably got more start. Is it more start now? I think so. The, the, I think clear, and that's whether it's the money and the clubs and the power and everything else th than it was maybe back then. I think when you were playing, 
towards the end of your career, there would have been teams going going out at Old Trafford thinking it's damage limitation. Yeah, we don't stand a chance here. I think actually now, we did. We did. We I remember we went to Old Trafford. We got beaten four nil with Wednesday, and I remember the following morning we were talking about the the game and the fact we'd lost four nil. And the conversation was, well, hold on a minute. We've lost 4-0 against United. We haven't lost 4-0 against Palace or somebody. It was like, well, what do you expect? So even as professionals, we thought, well, surely that's not how pros should think. We knew that actually coming away, being beaten 4-0, it is not the end of the world because it's not happened against a team that shouldn't be beating us 4-0. But I think the problem now is that you have a lot of teams thinking a lot about damage limitation. I suppose the example of Liverpool this year shows that it can switch pretty quickly, that teams now very clearly don't going to Anfield fancying their chances. If you know, as Newcastle showed, you know, there's there's clearly a thought if we can just even limit them to one, we'll probably nick an equaliser and potentially a winner uh, late on, just they're they're crumbling so easily. But I think generally teams are going to City, to old to Old Trafford, probably to Chelsea to an extent, to Anfield until relatively recently and assuming we're not getting anything from this. And I think when you have lots and lots of games that feel like that, that is a problem for mm-hmm. a league. Mm-hmm. And it can be demoralising and understandable that fans would, would, would rail against something being, yeah. something that, that gap being increased and in the level of competition between those two sets of, of clubs being, yes, being so gargantuan oh, and, and that it feels the, completely demoralising. But that was the fundamental problem with the ESL, was that it would have exacerbated those problems rather than addressing them. And I think the change when it comes has to address those, has to address those problems. That's why I think you need to look at things like spreading players out among clubs to make to level the playing field in a, in a kind of more immediate sense. There, there will be financial things you can do as well. But fans have to be aware that... And that, again, I don't want to sound pompous or like a dick, but... Um, Fans have to be aware that, it, that this isn't that the change that they're talking about shouldn't be one billionaire for another billionaire. It shouldn't be one set of six powerful clubs for another set of six powerful clubs. It has to be change that kind of lasts and turns the game into something inherently more competitive, even if that means that their team doesn't. That the change that comes will not just benefit their team. And I do wonder how much of that is involved in this conversation. There's a lot of people thinking bringing the, that cartel down will benefit my club. It might not. Because the problem is that the big six, the Super League 12, have got confused between what is in their club's interests and what is in the game's interests. And those things are not the same. What's good for, the, for your club is not necessarily what's good for the game. And that applies to Manchester United as much as it applies to Crystal Palace. What's good for Palace isn't necessarily good for the game. And that is how the conversation has to be framed. How does the game get better, not any individual club? Uh, so now that we've heard from Chinch, we can we can finish. So that box is ticked. But I also want, uh, bearing in mind you spoke about intelligent people contributing to this uh, conversation, I wanted to include a couple uh, of emails or parts of emails sent in by, firstly, Tom O'Hanlon, who says this. Hi, guys. For all the outrage about the working class game being stolen, is it me or did the ESL feel like a very middle class problem? Many of the fans with whom the most vigorous opponents of the ESL used to furnish their monologues are already priced out of and marginalised from the game by the existing structures. But already we're just returning to the status quo and approving the Super League light version of the Champions League. I'd love to celebrate the demise of the ESL as a victory, but if a year from, on from the pandemic enforced shutdown, football wastes another chance to enact meaningful reforms, then Florentino Perez and Andrea Agnelli are still the real winners. Please keep up the good work. This pod is rapidly becoming the few, one of the few things I still enjoy about football. So there's a very depressed Tom O'Hanlon for now, he says, still a Manchester United fan. And Lee Eustace, who's from Australia, traditions and a more conservative disposition seems to reign supreme in football fan culture. 
And whilst the game needn't mould into a North American model because it works over there, so why not follow suit? A staunch hesitance to change will only force these sorts of episodes again when such radical progressive ideas are put forward by the minority who can see a greener pasture, but because it's different... It's a criminal act. With a better PR plan, Perez and Pals will be coming back again. And eventually, this will surely get through. That's from uh, Lee and from Tom. Thank you for your contributions on this debate. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori, What a Soccer Story. This is an Andy Tells tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behaviour and libel-worthy details removed. And as previewed last week, Chinch, you have something a little different. Would you like to introduce? Uh, well, yes, I've clearly done a lot of, of um, soccer stories. And I, I'm... <laughs> I'm racking my brains for more, and I will find more. I'm determined to squeeze some more out of my tiny brain. But I, I, I said maybe a running theme of, of speaking to people who've come across Chinch and the influence and, and importance of myself in their lives. And clearly the first place, the only place I had to start was with my lovely wife, Nicola. So this is hopefully the first in a, in a, a major series that, that I'm hoping Netflix will pick up and turn into a, a visual treat and not just a, an aural one. Uh, so here we go. This is Chinch. I was going to get Chinch to hand to Chinch, but uh, clearly he doesn't have the pro- levels of professionalism. It's Alan on Alan <laughs> on Partridge on Partridge. Here we go then. Here's Chinch. Now I've told many hilarious, informative and poignant soccer stories about myself. Um, and I thought I'd maybe do things a little bit differently this week. So I, I have a guest for a soccer story. Not really a guest. Uh, she's she's my wife, so she's quite important. So can you just state your name for the recording, please? <laughs> Nikki. Oh, Hinchcliffe. Hinch, you are yes, you are legally, yes. legally, legally my wife. Yeah. Um. So what I wanted to do was ask you about your relationship with a. With you. Yeah, we, we have oh, a rela- yeah. You do have a relationship with yeah, me. Yeah, 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 we do, we do. Yeah. Um, but it it must be quite tricky. You know, I'm a footballing and broadcasting A-lister. A-lister. Some people say legend. Um, <laughs> not my words, other people's A-lister. words. So it it must be. I just want to kind of pick your brains as to how how wonderful, extraordinary, really, it must be <laughs> living and being married to such a such a, a well-known, famous face. So our meeting. Our first, when you first laid eyes on me, mm. can, I, I, I think I know what went down, but I had probably had about five pints of strong lager. So I might not see it as clearly because you, you weren't meant to be out that night, were you? And you certainly hadn't been drinking. So what was your take on when I first burst through the doors and you first saw me? I didn't really see you. What? I didn't really see you until you muscled in on our conversation. Who are, you, who, who are you with? I was with my two friends. And what were you, where were you? Uh, Lavina. Which is a... Wine bar. A high class, high class wine bar. Well, actually, we were in the wrong one. In the wrong wine bar? Yes. Why? We, we what do you mean? We were supposed to be in a different one, so we weren't supposed to be there anyway at all that night. Right, so you were there with a couple of your friends. Yeah. Not drinking? No, I had a migraine. I was wanting to go home. You wanted to go home, but thank goodness you didn't. Well, I couldn't get away from you, so you kind of wedged me between the bar and the... Uh, uh, my stall and I couldn't actually get away from you. But it wasn't. I, I wasn't aggressive, was I? Oh no, no. But did you do when you, you say, say love at? I don't want to put words in your mouth. But love, love at first sight was it? Was it? Uh, did it hit you like a sledgehammer? Well, I couldn't really see properly. I had this blinding migraine and blurry yeah. vision. Really, probably worse than yours. Right. So you were kind of seeing me through a, a, a headache, a very yeah. strong headache. Yes. And slightly Vaseline eyes. 
but yeah. you and also you wouldn't you wouldn't give me your your phone number why why was that well because you were so drunk i didn't think you'd uh, keep hold of how it did, or you'd probably lose it how did how do you know i was drunk because you were clearly drunk was i lolling about a bit was i talking loudly well yeah no uh, uh mm-hmm. you were talking a lot was I? Yeah, but you do that anyway, don't you? And, tell, and when we started talking, yeah. something dawned on you, didn't it, about a friend of yours that I might have known or something? Was there some you realised... Do you realized... really want to get into that? Well, just tell it briefly, but don't go into too many details, but just okay. you, kind of, you kind of had an idea about who I was, didn't you, when, I started, when we started talking? Well, I just don't want to go into details, just in case she listens to this. There was another woman involved, wasn't there, which I had a very brief... brief flirtation with but it was a friend of yours and you who hasn't spoken to me since this is this catch a casualty of casualty of war casualty mm. of love these things sadly yeah. happen but you got the big you got the big prize but tell us the um when we started courting mm. you know cl- eventually i got your phone number eventually we met and we had something to eat and clearly we got on very very well you were smitten yeah, I think I was. Yeah, you were yeah. How difficult is it when, when you go out with a, a major celebrity? Is it tricky kind of being out in public when <laughs> the adoration that clearly comes the way of someone that you're, you've fell head over heels in love with, is it difficult when, when fans are coming up and, and speaking to your loved one? Do you feel as if you're kind of getting pushed out? Or is that something you have to accept with, with being in a relationship with a, with a major celebrity? I don't celebrity? think it ever really happened, did it? Yeah, but was that one occasion when, when I got mobbed? By that couple? You can get mobbed by a couple, yeah, yeah. And what did they? And you, were you not? Were you not kind of a bit jealous when they came over and started saying, "You're great, you're great, you're great." Do you not remember? Well, they didn't really say that, did they? They came over. They've been looking at you for a long time, and then they came over and said, uh, oh, "Excuse me, I hope you don't mind me asking, but are you that footballer, um, Dave? What's he called? White. Dave White." <laughs> They, they thought, yeah, they did think I was... They thought you were Dave White. Yeah, but... But they were adamant about it, because when you said no, they asked you if you were sure. Yeah, I definitely am sure that I'm not Dave White. And then so when you said not... no, you were Andy Hinchcliffe, they looked a little bit disappointed and walked No, they didn't. No, they did Why would you say they oh, didn't? They, did they? A bit. Well, well they that's... didn't. They walked off. You offered them your autograph but they didn't want it they d- no they did want it no, they, they just felt awkward because they they've mistaken me for someone who is probably seven stone heavier than me oh. it was a bit demeaning <laughs> but then but then when things moved on a pace yeah. from there yeah. you got used yeah. to me people swarming around me and saying well andy we love you give give me your autograph um no, you no. eventually i i very quickly realized that you were the one i i, I needed had to marry tell us about my proposal and what it what it meant to you and, and what emotions it brought forth well, I was quite drunk, wasn't I? That didn't affect the decision you made, though, did oh, it? Oh, no. No, you still would have... Did I say yes at the time? Uh, I, I, heard, I, think I heard yes, but oh. was that just in my head? I don't know. Do you remember the lady who was on the table next to us? Yeah. Because you burst into tears because you did. were so emotional. I was emotional. You were so happy, weren't you? Yeah. So happy. Well, I think it was because I'd had too much to drink. Yeah. It makes me emotional, doesn't it, And the prospect of marrying her. And oh, right. That, yeah. that was probably why you yeah. cried. Yeah. Um, but the lady on the table next to us was, thought I'd done something horrible mm. to upset you because you were crying. Mm. She thought you were crying with anger and frustration and unhappiness, but you weren't. You were crying oh, yes. with, with happiness. Yeah, and I was a bit drunk. And no, don't keep mentioning it. Okay, just sounds sorry, like you didn't sorry. do something. Don't keep mentioning the booze. <laughs> so we've had, oh, how many years together have we had now? Oh, Christ. Um, mm. 
13. Eight years this year. Eight years together? Yes. And what's those... Have you just got used to the fact that you, people adore your husband? It doesn't really happen that often. Uh, no, it does. No, it does. We do. When? Happens, happens to me a lot when I'm not with, with you. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm. Maybe you give out the vibes that people don't want to approach me because don't they know. Don't come near him. Don't come near my man. man. He's mine. Mm. He's my A-lister. He's my broadcasting I'm footballing sure legend. I'm sure you're an A-lister. What am I then? Well, what is an A-lister? You know, top of the pile. Yeah. Every, if you put yeah. my face. Yeah. If you walked into a supermarket with a picture of me and showed people from 16 to 65... They they would all no the, they wouldn't no <laughs> if you went into if you went into the local butchers in Woodford and showed my picture to we haven't got butchers in Woodford well, but I'm all there okay. we've got we've got our butchers we go to haven't we, we have yeah, don't advertise oh, for them why unless not? we get They're some free good. so we get to try and get some free meat out of them no yeah we can that's what we do that's don't what the podcast that. is mainly for no um, so, but yeah, if you showed all the people who come into the butchers my picture, right? What percentage of them would know? They would know me, wouldn't they? From young, so they would. Probably, if a if a heart, you know, if 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 a core of middle aged men went in to the butchers, there's a possibility they might recognise you because it does seem to be middle aged men that recognise you. Really? Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Just middle aged men. <laughs> City they, fans, they, probably. They, possibly. Yeah. Yeah. And those those little fan fan mail you get fan mail don't you? I do, don't I? Tell tell us about yeah. the get ream loads of it, don't I? It's the Not post really. boxes bursting, isn't it, with fan mail? No, you get one or two a year. No, I'm getting. And, and you got that one from that that really sweet little kid in uh, Singapore who thought you were Alan Shearer, but you no. signed his pictures anyway. I, that isn't tr- that is not a true story, <laughs> but that has happened where again people mistake me for somebody more famous. So I think we've given people... I think you're famous here. I'm famous in my own house, yeah, aren't I? You're allowed but to be, yeah. Am I? Of course you are. And you, you give me plenty of leeway because yeah. I do have some... I'm quite deep, can I'm quite deaverish, can't I? Can I? Well, you know, sometimes you're a bit difficult. Difficult. Mm. But that, is that comes with the... T- you knew what you were getting into. Mm. Probably were, yeah. Well, not at the time, obviously. Mm. But. So, safe to say, yeah. all things considered, yeah. am I the best... Husband, you've ever had? <laughs> how many? How many? How many have you had? How many have you had? How many husbands? One. One previous. So you've had, yeah. including me, well, two it's husbands. Hard to compare you to him. Okay, and in terms of how good looking I am. Oh yeah. How how do I compare to a lot of the the men that have been in your life? Am I? Am yeah. I up there? Am no, I the... Oh yeah. Right, but some of them have been oh, I know, yeah. real Fraggle Rock yeah. candidates, haven't they? <laughs> so. But anyway, I think we've I think we've learned from this that we've learned something, yes. and the listeners will realise yeah. just how wonderful. Fo- wonderful I am, and maybe yeah. how fortunate you are. And you 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 feel blessed every day. I do, yeah, I do. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, maybe we can have another chat in the future, just to, as as our life develops. Maybe we can talk about different areas of. Of our life, would you like to be I more involved like in it. the podcast or not? Uh, what podcast? You know that. You know when those those <laughs> middle-aged men come round and eat all your food that you make. That you know. You know. You know the, the smarmy one who does all the talking. Um, um, oh, who? what's his name? Um, not not who Hugh. Who Hugh 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 Hugh, oh, Hugh. Yeah. Hugh. Yeah. And then there's the one that's always late. 
yeah. You Rory. know Rory, you know Rory, yeah. and there's yeah. one that you you know the one that I, you like, don't Steve. you? Steve. Why do you like why do you like Steve? I just love him. But why? He's just lovely. He's just so yeah. lovely. I see him in the gym. Do you see him He's in... very fit. Is he? Oh, yes. He hides it well, doesn't he? Well, he does a lot of fitness there. So, of all the... So, I would be... And of... a very, very sexy voice. Very, very sexy voice. Very sexy voice, yeah. Mm. Yeah, he's got a face for radio. So, if... Um, so, of the four of us, yeah. I would be number one. Yeah, Steve, yeah. number two. A close second, maybe, but Steve, definitely, definitely, definitely number two. Definitely. Rory, maybe, or Hugh, who would you say is bottom of the pile or the joint bottom? I think that's probably the best thing to say. Would you put them both yeah, equally as bad probably. equally as bad as each other? Yeah. Well, there we are. That's a, that's a real insight. You can give us real insight have into I? your life. Yeah, yeah, you have. You have. You've really, really helped. And maybe this is what I'm thinking of doing is taking this and speaking to other people. Who could you recommend me speak to next about me? Mike. Mike. Mm-hmm, the decorator. Mike, the decorator. That... He likes you. I know he likes me, but I should really have a bank of friends, shouldn't I? That, but I don't. Not really. Not, I'm probably just. I'm so much better than everybody else that I just don't. I yeah, I don't have that. So anyway, thank you for your input. You're giving people an idea, listeners, an idea about the wonderful life that you have. And um, I, yes, it is wonderful. And uh, just to finish, I love you. I love you too. And uh, please don't leave me. I won't. <laughs> so there we go. First in a recurring. And potentially very short series. Of a recurring nightmare. Who <laughs> to talk to Chinch. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemedia.gmail.com. Please subscribe, share, rate, and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule. Thank you to Steve, Andy, and Rory, and to you all for listening, and to Nikki as well. We'll be back with another set piece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed. I like think, Steve, Steve, you'll be feeling good about yourself. You came out of that interview very well indeed. I'm just, I thought. I'm just sending her a message from right now. <laughs> and she's drinking more urine. <laughs> I didn't, Chinch, I didn't know you kept firearms in the house, but uh, clearly the, uh, the, the scrutiny that uh, Nikki was under there, that she more or less had a gun pointed to her head for the duration of that. So it, thought... it wasn't, it was a gun, not many guns. That's all I'm going to say. She was under pressure. She felt under pressure. She felt nervous. She did feel nervous. She's not a, she's not a regular broadcaster. No, I just, so it's, I just, it's uncomfortable for the, for the general public, really, to the gem pop, to talk about this type of subject. I just thought it was interesting that on the night you met her that uh, she had a migraine and mm. uh, you've uh, you've committed her to a lifelong headache. Oh, beautiful. Is it during, oh. That, during that conversation that you were playing out, Steve was writing out all these one-liners to be yeah, able to just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Bottom of the list is, remember to text Nikki about that game of tennis. <laughs>